Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. The race is on, and Charles Leclerc finally took his third win of the season in the Austrian Grand Prix, but not before a late scare caused by a sticking throttle. But why did Ferrari have such a decisive advantage at the Red Bull ring, and what caused Max Verstappen's troubles? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to answer those questions and many more are Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes. Scott, how are you doing in your mobile podcast studio? Yeah, I'm all, I'm all good, thanks Ed. Uh, this part of the podcast, my side of the podcast, is brought to you from uh, inside uh, inside my, my, my car for the week. Uh, I'm parked a little way away from the Red Bull ring. I can see it in the distance if I try. And Mark Hughes, you've gone for the more conventional walls and roof approach. Yes, um, I, I think... Um, the one, the one difficulty about this race is um, because it's in rural area, it's quite difficult to get a, um, a place uh, nearby. And I think um, that's been Scott's downfall. I think um, he would uh, have to relocate to Vienna, which is a couple of hours drive away um, before doing this podcast. Uh, so, yeah, um, I'm, by contrast, just about 20 minutes down the road. I should stress that my Vienna strategy is only for tonight. I haven't been commuting to and from Vienna every single day. I'm not that bad with travel logistics. <laughs> yeah, it's a great race, but yeah, not always the easiest. I remember one year staying there in a guest house that was on the campsite, really close to the track, but there was a 24-hour thumping soundtrack, which uh, probably wasn't ideal, but at least shows people were having a good time. Well, plenty to talk about in this race, so let's get straight into it. Mark, usual question for you in terms of how this race was won. Obviously, Leclerc had to pass Max Verstappen three times to win it, but pace-wise, it was a lot easier than perhaps that suggests. So can you explain how it played out, starting off perhaps with the Saturday sprint, given Verstappen actually won that with relative ease? Yes, and I think that was the key. Um, you'll have seen the um, the close fight in the in the sprint in the early laps between the two Ferrari drivers, and um, Carlos Sainz was surprised. Let's say that Leclerc decided to uh, drive to a tire conservation um, plan because that hadn't been the plan going in. They they, they felt that. Tire deg wasn't going to be an issue over just 24 laps, and they were going to go all out and attack Verstappen. But then that's not the drive that Leclerc then did. Uh, he 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 was a little bit surprised at how hard Verstappen went in the opening lap or two, and thought, "Hmm, I think um, I I'm, I'm not going to try and match that. I'm just going to try and uh, keep my tires in good shape and attack him at the end." But he couldn't really get close enough to do that he closed down a little bit towards the end and he was a little bit faster than the the Red Bull towards the end but it didn't put the Red Bull under any real pressure didn't put Verstappen under any real pressure and maybe that's one of the contributing factors to Red Bull not discovering that actually the tire deck was real was real and um, come today on a track that had been washed by the rain earlier on and which was a little bit cooler um yeah, it turns out that the the Red Bull had higher rear tyre dig than the Ferrari, and that was the crucial thing. And it was apparent very early on that uh, Max just couldn't hold the, the, the pace necessary to uh, get the Ferrari off his back, and he was converted very early on to a two-stop. And at that stage, Ferrari was going to stay on the one-stop with Leclerc, which would probably have been a winning strategy, except 
the deg was high even on the Ferrari. Not as high as on the Red Bull, but high enough to migrate them over towards a two-stop. Um, but they had a much nicer spaced um, um, strategy. The, 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 the 12-lap difference between Verstappen's first stop and Leclerc's meant that they could space it out much um, much more equally, and that, that just gave Leclerc a massive tyre advantage each time he came out just a little bit behind Verstappen each time he was able to over, overtake him every time. So every stint he did, he was able, he started behind but easily overtook him. And then that's just, yeah, the, the, there was a, a function of the Ferrari having better tyre dig um, on, on the day, better rear tyre dig. And the first of our questions from members of the Race Members Club is from Andy Sally, Mark, on that topic, who asks, is it me or have Ferrari made improvements on tyre wear or did they just run longer knowing they could use the advantage of fresher tyres later on? Now, they certainly had a deck advantage, didn't they? Why did that exist? Yeah, well, I think it depends on if the, if the circuit is um, more demanding of the front axle or the rear. And we've seen that at um, front-limited circuits, if you run the Ferrari hard for very long, it will open out its front tyre. And that's why the Red Bull has inevitably been faster on those sort of tracks. And most of the tracks on the calendar are front-limited. But on rear-limited tracks, if you think of um, Bahrain, Monaco, and even at Barcelona, it was quite sort of balanced between rear and front-limited. At those tracks, the Ferrari has been faster. Um, And here it was again. Uh, a real limited track, and it, it, it just gets the Ferrari around its front limitation, and it's actually, you know, it can translate its speed into the race. And Scott, obviously in the closing stages, Charles Leclerc had that throttle problem. He said he was very scared over the radio on the on the slowdown lap. Can you blame him for being a little bit nervous with the way that race ended? Oh, I think it's completely, uh, completely justified. Um, probably a bit more nervous than I am right now that you might be able to hear some fireworks going off in the background. I've got a lovely view of some. I guess they're coming from one of the uh, campsites near <laughs> near the circuit just distracted me. Not sure if that'll be picked up. Um, yeah, I, th- I thought uh, I thought Charles did a great job of managing that problem. The reason why it would have been so scary for him, I guess two reasons. First is how the problem actually manifested itself because the throttle looked like it was sticking. I had a little look at some data suggested the throttle was sticking at around 15 20% open um going through some of the the low speed corners so he would have been scared from the point of view of you just don't know if that car the car's just going to push on mid corner um is he going to go off completely is it just going to cost him the race so there's just that element of uncertainty that breeds fear but then there also would have been the fact that a, a stuck throttle is is right up there for a driver's worst night there it's um probably equal first with going into a heavy braking zone and your brake pedal going long <laughs> they're they're sort of two almost two sides of the same coin um so my guess is that i think he also would have been scared that the problem would have got worse because if the throttle's sticking a certain amount who's to say it's not going to start sticking at a higher amount what if he's going into a medium or high speed corner or at the end of the straight at the top of the hill and he goes off the throttle onto the brakes, but the throttle stays on entirely. In that situation, I can imagine it is, uh, I think he said in the press conference, didn't he, Ed? Not just a bit stressful, a lot stressful. Yeah, he said it was very stressful. Uh, I asked him, actually, after the race, how he had to adapt to it. And he basically just said he was lifting and coasting in the corner, so he knew how much throttle he had, and then he could adjust to it. He said it wasn't, uh, wasn't easy, but certainly you can imagine why he was worried. That situation itself is a bit concerning, but he's had several lost race wins in the past five races. He's just seen his uh, his teammate have an engine failure burning at the side of the track. So uh, you can imagine why he might be thinking everything was going against him. But yeah, he called it a breakthrough getting this win after so much trouble. Hasn't won since Australia, of course. So yeah, can't blame Leclerc for being nervous and being pretty relieved over the radio. There's also a quick question from Philippe Esposito, who says a hypothetical about Charles Leclerc. How close was he to receiving a black and orange flag for his throttle problem? What do you think, Scott? Uh, it's, a, it's a very good question. I don't think something like that becomes uh, a, a, that that kind of instruction, purely because the that, that must come under the team's remit for just ensuring he has a safe car. I, I don't think... I don't think there would be enough information for race control to to inter, interfere. The FIA, I'm I'm sure, would be able to access 
the data if they really needed to check it. But I, I, I feel like in that situation, the onus is just entirely on the team. Uh, the black and orange flag is for when it's uh, almost like a physical mechanical problem, isn't it? Yeah, I think you'd have needed a more serious one for anyone to get uh, get involved on that kind of thing. It was it was manageable, and obviously he was still showing good pace. He wasn't having massive, terrifying moments or anything. That might have changed things a, a little bit. So dealt with it very well, I think. Let's move on now, Scott. As not for the first time, we have to visit Carlos Sainz's sympathy corner. He suffered that failure while running third. He was surely just about to pass Verstappen for second. So, yeah, Ferrari reliability again. Yeah, I mean, what what can you say for 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 signs really, other than having an immense amount of sympathy for him? Just as he was rebuilding his season and putting a bit of momentum into his campaign, he he, he suffers this. Uh, I guess the 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 main takeaway is just actually quite thankful it wasn't worse because there were two elements of the as he pulled over that were really scary. Obviously, how quickly the flames spread. It, it, it was quite a dramatic failure and then fire. But then also, he, he because of the nature of the circuit, uh, as he was trying to get out of the car, the car was rolling backwards. Um, and I was worried about that for two reasons. One, what that meant for signs and how quickly he could evacuate the car. And two, one of the, the, the marshals that was trying to help out, I thought he was going to lose an arm or something. The way he was trying, he almost at one point looked like he was trying to grab the front right wheel as the car was rolling backwards and I, I just I was so glad the the camera cut away because I, I don't want to see how this ends um but it's a I mean obviously it's a massive problem for Ferrari to have yet another uh, engine failure such a spectacular one as well it was a good old school proper explosion that we that we could see um but after obviously the high for for, for Carlos in in, in Britain a week ago, he got a little bit fortunate there, maybe to, to to score his first win. He was he was he was certainly going to get Verstappen. It would have been an easy one-two for Ferrari. Um, so it's a huge blow for him and a big question mark against the team because it shows that that reliability element. We we talked about this a few races ago. It was never going to be a short-term fix, and they've just kind of pro- proven that in the most emphatic way possible. Yeah, Matteo Bonotto said that the failure, it was a, a V6 engine failure, the, the ICE that went, and he said it was probably the same as the failure that Leclerc had in Baku. He wasn't 100% sure, but said it was probably the same. Those are the two ICE-specific failures they've had this season, so some work to, to be done there. And yeah, Carlos Sainz did say that the process was a bit slow of getting to him and stopping the car. I think that Marshall you mentioned was trying to get a chock in under the wheel, wasn't he, to to stop it, which was a sensible move. But you can imagine uh, Sight said, well, I didn't really want to send the car rolling back towards the track on fire, but there was a point where I kind of had to start to get out of the car because there was a lot of fire. So yeah, plenty of damage there for the for the Ferrari as well. So uh, not, not ideal. Mark Leclerc's now 38 points behind Verstappen in the Drivers' Championship. Ferrari 56 off in the Constructors'. What did this weekend tell us about the balance of power between the top two teams? I, I think they, in terms of performance, they, they're still very, very evenly matched. Um, it, it's just that that bugbear of reliability is hanging over the, the the power unit, and it's 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 pretty clear. It's um, it, it's not a robust unit. It's a very um, competitive unit, and they've. they've Developed it very quickly from a long way back, and they've, they've banked that performance gain um, with the you know, ability to do reliability upgrades when they've um, worked out how to do that. But um, if you'd done it the other way around and made it reliable but not fast, you couldn't then apply for performance upgrades. So they, they've done it the, the logical way, but I think that that approach. Um, it will work against it. It's already worked against them, but I think it will work against them in in terms of them being a serious championship contender. I think most I can hope for is just um, a few days like these peppered among um, some reliability issues elsewhere and grid grid penalties, etc. There's going to be some power unit grid penalties coming later in the season for them, no question about that. So interesting to see how that goes. But at least we've got a little bit of a a glimmer of a championship fight still happening. Although I can't help but feel it's more about making sure they can kind of have a bit of a run this season and set themselves up to be title-winning force next season. But it could be wrong. Hopefully, this battle will really spark into life. Hi, producer Johnny here, interrupting the show momentarily to tell you about Roan, a clothes brand we think you'd like. 
I don't know about you, but finding clothes you like can be tough. Sizes can vary from brand to brand, and fabrics can be poor quality or uncomfortable. We all know a good outfit can impact your confidence and help you feel your best, and that's where Roan comes in. Their range of stylish, functional, business casual menswear helps you look good without having to think about it. It's versatile, high quality and durable, and works in a range of social and professional settings. Roan's commuter collection includes products for every occasion, including the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, polos and blazers. It also features, and get this, wrinkle release technology and gold fusion anti-odor technology for more wears between washes, so you'll be fresh and clean all day long. Roan were kind enough to send me a shirt and some pants from the commuter collection, and I can tell they're going to be part of my wardrobe for a long time to come. The commuter collection could get you through any workday and straight into whatever comes next. Head to roan.com forward slash race and use promo code race to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you head to rhone.com forward slash race and use code race. It's time to find your corner office comfort. Well, Scott, Sergio Perez retired with significant damage from his first lap collision with George Russell at Turn 4. He did soldier on for a while, but eventually retired from last. Now, that earned George Russell a five-second penalty. Was that fair? Uh, <laughs> I think it was the correct decision in so far as the racing rules that were outlined at the start of the year were applied, I think, correctly, because it's been made very clear now that position at the apex is the all-important factor and this it doesn't seem to matter the dynamics of the situation so where you are either side of it um and uh, so it doesn't matter how you get there or what happens on the other side of the apex if you're ahead at the apex then you are entitled to 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 room in the corner whether you're on the outside or the inside obviously in this situation Perez was on the outside so by rights he was owed room but the reality of that situation was that that Perez had made the move aggressively on the outside after Russell had already hit the brakes. And what that meant was that Russell couldn't do any more to slow the car down. Perez kept him fairly pinned to the inside. So there was a bit of contact. Perez said that he was out by the gravel and couldn't give Russell any more room, which just, that just wasn't the case. So I feel like, honestly, the realities of that situation in a dynamic 3D battle there's not really any more Russell can do to avoid that contact. But in the explicit black and white of the racing guidelines outlined for this year, well, by Russell's own admission, it was a penalty. Yeah, it is tricky with these racing rules they've got. It did look like straight away it had to be a penalty because of the relative position of the cars. But it's a bit of a grey area about exactly how much space is enough space. So that'll probably be one that uh, the drivers dispute for a while. Now, Mark, that penalty for Russell and the fact he had to stop for a nose change, so he had quite an early stop and then had to work his way back through. I think he was down in about 18th place after that stop. He came back through to fourth. But yeah, Hamilton was ahead. As expected, this was a tougher weekend for Mercedes and it was made even harder by the fact that they had shunts in qualifying. So where did the Silverstone pace go and why did we see so many Mercedes drivers hitting the wall? It wasn't quite there and it's not the sort of track um, that, you, that you would expect to see the car um, in its best light. Um, and I think the times on Friday flattered it somewhat and it was being absolutely, um, it was having its neck wrung to do those times and uh, that was reflected in uh and what we saw in Q3, it was just two drivers pushing extremely hard, um, figuring they've got a little bit of a chance. And, uh, yeah, they, they both just made errors ultimately and uh, in a car that wasn't quite there. And the, the race showed that it was about half a second off the pace, which is it's better than it used to be on this sort of track. You, you Earlier in the season, you were looking at eight-tenths a second off. But, um, yeah, it, it, I I would expect it to be Silverstone quick again at uh, Porricard, but uh, the Red Bull ring wasn't really uh, isn't isn't a configuration that will suit its strength. 
yeah, nice smooth track at Paul Ricard, which is something that Mercedes always enjoy. But yeah, they, they had a few little problems coming from that qualifying crash. Obviously, lost some parts. Hamilton had to race a car built up around the spare chassis in the sprint and the uh, and the Grand Prix, and also Russell had to go to the high downforce rear wing because he didn't have the the low downforce one after he'd backed one into the wall. So tight on parts there for Mercedes as well, which is kind of the nature of the game in this cost cap era. But yeah, the Mercedes driver is able to fairly comfortably be ahead of that that midfield group in the end, very much back in there. No man's land. Now, Scott, at Alpine, Esteban Ocon had a lovely run to fifth. So lovely, in fact, there's very little to say about it, other than he was almost derailed by a fuel pump failure that forced him to stop on the slowdown lap at the end of the sprint. But he pretty much did the maximum he could have done in qualifying the sprint and the race. But Alonso grabbed the headlines again, did pretty well to salvage a point for 10th with that last lap pass on Bottas. So what mountains did he hyperbolically climb this weekend? Well, he uh, he didn't even get to take the start of the, the sprint race because the, the car wouldn't fire up. Uh, Alpine don't really have an answer for why. They know there was an electrical problem of some kind. They suspect it is it could be within um, any part of the mess of wiring within the car or uh, something within the power unit or something within the, the, the standard uh, ECU. So they changed all of those parts for, for the Grand Prix as a precaution, and obviously it was fine. They, they um, I don't know the best way to describe this. You two are much uh, more intelligent people than, than, than I, but they were so unsure about what the problem was at the start of the sprint that when they, they wheeled the car back to the garage and got the, what's it called, like the external... The, the sort of external starter to try and to try and fire up the car and and, and couldn't get it to couldn't get it to fire up so there there was just there was no chance for I can't remember where Fernando uh, was due to start for the sprint race he he not qualified as high as he should have because he damaged the floor didn't he in in qualifying but he didn't get to start from his eighth position as my uh, expert research of looking at the number of uh, fingers and thumbs that Ed was holding up <laughs> on the on the call just now tells me. Um, so that meant that he then had to start from the back of the grid. They, they took a few more um, strategic uh, power unit components. Obviously, as I say, they changed the power unit because of this electrical issue. Uh, so he was starting from the back, burned from the stern. We've seen Alonso do this before. Um, but he also had the unusual problem of having to do uh, back-to-back pit stops under virtual safety car and when I say back-to-back pit stops I literally mean his outlap became his inlap because on his outlap he felt a vibration which um, I'll uh, I'll throw this to you shortly Ed for you to be able to explain why it was a bit suspicious but Alonso brought it back into the pits with very very little communication to his team had a uh, very an, another quick change all four wheels and tyres back on his way again and then that's why he dropped down and had to fight his way back to 10th now I'll very briefly cover what the stewards looked into there because they had this vibration there was a suspicion that Alonso had left the the pits and gone on track with a with an unsafe car basically you know an improperly fitted wheel Alpine contested that wasn't possible because of some um, fancy new pit stop equipment that they've got which means it's not possible for the wheel to become loose if the the gun says that it's tight then it is tight and it can only be gunned off uh, the stewards looked into it and found that actually there was no movement at all uh, with the, I think it was the front left, until after turn three on Alonso's outlap. So basically what had happened, according to the stewards, is that some time between leaving the pit box and getting to turn three, there had been a failure of some kind. Some damage on the axle and the wheel did support this. So the stewards d- d- determined that there was a very quick fire failure that Alonso suffered rather than it being improperly fitted so he didn't get a penalty but it did uh, massively compromise his race but I'll throw it to you Ed to explain why you thought the there was a bit of suspicious behavior around this and I don't know if you've looked at the stewards document in detail maybe you can explain why the stewards said that this wasn't actually as suspicious as it looked. Yeah suspicious or maybe just clever I was watching with Alonso on board because I clocked the fact he made the two stops because the first pit stop under the VSC was quite well timed for him he'd come out ninth and had some decent tyres, so could have pushed on from there. But he he just said, box again on that outlap. And the team said, well, why? And he just repeated, box again. So I thought, well, okay, he knows that he needs to pit, and he doesn't want to communicate about why. So I sort of thought probably that is a loose wheel of some sort. He didn't want to alert anyone to it. I don't have a big problem with there being no penalty or, or anything, because ultimately they, they looked at it, and there were 
they don't think it qualifies as an unsafe release. You could argue that for driver things, they've got a loose wheel. They might be meant to stop. I'm not sure, but yeah, it's okay. Alonso was sensible and uh, he was on, he's still under the VSC on that lap, which I think was the key thing. He wasn't at racing speeds or anything. So that meant it a little bit, but it was a little bit more sensible and safe, but I just thought it was quite clever from Alonso to make sure he didn't flag it up too spectacularly on the radio. And it just shows what a, a sharp racing driver he is. And I've, yeah, he deserved to at least nab that point at the end because I think he'd have had a, a much better weekend without that series of failures. Although the only thing counting against him is he did have that self-induced floor damage at the start of Q3. He tried to grab just that little bit too much track on the entry to turn one and sort of fell off the back of the curb, which unsettled him and sent him wide. Mark, let's talk about Haas. Second consecutive race, we've had both Haas drivers in the points, which I think was pretty encouraging given that they specialised in squandering points earlier in the year. Magnussen also got a couple in the sprint. Mick Schumacher did appear to be the quicker of the two, finished six. We have a question from Thomas who asks, has Mick Schumacher made a step forward or is it too soon to judge? No, I think it has. I think there's three consecutive races now and as the car's improved, he's gone with it and that's not always the case. Um, I think, yes, I think you're right. I think on balance, he probably was a little bit quicker than Kevin this weekend and um, that's you know that that is a significant progress from um, the first part of his season. So yeah, I think um, on this form, if he could continue this for the rest of the year, his uh, his seat should be safe for next year. Yeah, it's encouraging for him, isn't it, Scott? We've talked before how his early season form was really jeopardising his F one career, but he's he's got a foothold now, hasn't he, with this run of performance? Yeah, absolutely. I think he has found the level he needs to perform at to establish himself as a as a serious and, and longer-term F1 driver. We've we've seen before in his junior career that he has been able to kick on in the second season. This has always ended up counting against him in some ways because there have always been a- accusations of him getting helping hands from championship organisers and dodgy engines and stuff like this, which has never been substantiated and has always been emphatically refuted. And I think it's always, also always done Mick a disservice because he is an intelligent, hard-working driver who, who is also quick. You do see where he makes improvements as a driver. Um, and we hadn't seen that in really in the start of his second F1 season. And part of me wondered if that was because he had a little bit of a false rookie season in Formula 1. I don't really feel like he learned a great deal beyond the basics of driving a Formula 1 car and racing a Formula 1 car in 2021 because he wasn't doing an awful lot of of actual racing he wasn't driving under pressure very much he wasn't fighting for points he wasn't having to manage crucial elements really through a race so there were a lot of new tests at the start of this year he didn't pass all of them he had absolutely shown flashes but he was still yet to piece together a complete weekend and even though he scored his first points in the British Grand Prix that doesn't count as a complete weekend because he wasn't it wasn't there in qualifying but this was this was a lot more like uh, just a so, so, someone who can be a serious points threat all the time. That's what this performance was from Schumacher. Really, really good in qualifying, even better in the races. As as Mark said, as that car's got better, he's gone with it. The car's clearly got this potential. It's not just K-Mag leading the way now. Mix, mix there with him, even beating him. So this this is proper. This is... This is Mick Schumacher as a Formula 2 champion and a very, very decent midfield F1 driver with the potential to be even more than that. And therefore, this is comfortably the best he's looked so far through his fledgling F1 career. Yeah, the good thing is that Monaco shunt seems to have been the nadir and he's really picked up since then at a point where that could have been... uh, almost a, a killer blow to him career-wise, so good for him. Well, let's have a quick chat about Grid Rival, a fancy motorsport game in which the race has its own league. Terrible week for me with only 698 points, despite having Charles Leclerc and Ferrari in my team. How about you, Scott? Yeah, very, very good week. Didn't quite hit a 1,000 points. I'm still waiting to to do that, but my slightly maverick choice of going for the two Haas drivers this week really paid off. So maybe I'm... Uh, may, maybe, obviously... I'm still lacking in a, in a few areas compared to some of the Mavericks in this league who are just unbelievably good week in, week out. But uh, I feel like I'm maybe I'm doing a little bit of a Mick Schumacher. I've learned from some of the real low points early in the season and I'm starting to build a bit of momentum now. 
<laughs> well, we do have a new overall league leader, Jackie78958103, a strong team led by Leclerc and Verstappen that racked up 1,072 points this weekend, and it could have been even better had Carlos Sainz's engine held together, so well done, Jackie. Grid Rival is still open for sign-ups, and we'll be tracking progress over the year, so download the Grid Rival app or visit the website so you can get involved. The link is in the episode description for this podcast. Well, let's talk McLaren now, Scott. Lando Norris was a slightly apologetic seventh, apologetic because he was given a five-second penalty for track limits and had to serve that at his second pit stop. Danny Ricciardo backed him up in ninth place. Given we also saw track limits penalties for Joe Guan Yu and Sebastian Vettel, it was a big talking point. Tamara Salter from the Race Members Club asks, what specifically about the Red Bull ring made track limits such a big issue and were the stewards right to take such a tough stance on them? Okay, so... Uh, I'll start with the second part of that question first. Yes, the stewards were absolutely right to take such a tough stance. It was made super clear at the start of the year there would be no corner-by-corner guidance this year. There would be no special one-off guidance based on tracks. White line, police's track limits everywhere. The drivers and the teams and us, we've all been demanding more consistency. The white line was the easiest way to ensure this consistency. It was. It's not about... There, there's nothing dynamic about whether you've crossed a white line or not. Um, it doesn't change incident to incident. You either did or you didn't. So the, as far as I'm concerned, absolutely spot on. Max Verstappen had a big moan about it. I don't agree with him. You've asked for this. It is difficult, I'm sure, to work out whether you've crossed the white line or not. I don't care. You're F1 drivers. This is the rule. Play by it. And if you didn't, and as the FIA said, and I think people probably know by now, listen to this podcast, I don't always have a lot of good things to say about the FIA, but they pointed out rightly the number of warnings and messages and penalties just simply reflected the number of infringements so I I don't think there was really much that the drivers had to complain about there I think uh, I mean you two might be able to build on this a little bit more than me but the way I see the Red Bull ring as being so uh, I guess bad for track limits is a lot of the exit curbs are big wide exit curbs and while they are quite aggressive you can get away with really, really riding them. And despite some drivers' protests to the contrary, I don't think there's a time loss for smashing over an exit curb. If anything, it's you know it's a it, it's time neutral. It might not be a gain, but you don't really lose much from it. And obviously, if you can take more speed mid corner and then ride it out on the exit, you'll you, you'll gain there. So I think there's a, just a bit too much of an incentive to to really push the limit on, on on the exit. Plus, I think the undulations of the circuit mean it's easy for the cars to to, to wash out. I think it's just the nature of the the, 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 tra- the track layout, the shape and the size of the kerbs. That, that would be my guess, but I don't know if you two have anything that you'd like to add on that. Yeah, the two problem corners um, tend to be nine and ten, don't they? And um, it's sort of certainly nine. It's, it's a blind exit, so... You, you just commit to the apex and then that sort of defines what's going to happen on the exit, really. Um, so, yeah, there's that. Um, I, I think, yeah, I largely agree about the, you know, the, the line is the limit and there the, the shouldn't be exceptions. It, rather than having somebody trying to follow the every every driver's lap on video, um, I think if we, if we had a sort of uh, electronic loop that just, leap so that it was automatic um there would be far fewer arguments because you're not um you, you're not arguing with an opinion then you're just arguing with a you know a binary uh, signal yeah that would seem to be a good way forward obviously the point max verstappen made was that it's very easy to make a little mistake and have a bit of understeer and not gain time but obviously in the race situation you can get away with it three times you get the first two you get a warning then you get the black and white flag. Then on the fourth offence, you get the time penalty. So it's not quite so harsh. You can get away with a few little moments. And obviously, when it comes to qualifying, you've got to punish track limits because you can gain time from it. Obviously, there were some complaints about the Perez qualifying penalty because he was done for track limits at turn eight in Q2. So although he made Q3, he technically wasn't in Q3. So he lost that time and his Q2 time which did deprive someone a place in Q3, but I can't really see what else they, they could have done. And there was a strange quote from Christian Horner that was in the press release saying, if we'd known about it, we'd have had more time to fight back, but it was on his last lap, so I don't know what nonsense that was. But uh, anyway, I think it's it, it's okay. It's just incumbent on drivers to leave a bit more of a margin if they can't reliably uh, 
not violate the the track limits and only a few drivers were done. Uh, Scott, we should just say we saw McLaren have a bit of a difficult weekend, but be reasonably brisk. So seventh and ninth were Norris and Ricardo about par for them. Maybe Norris could have been a place higher. Yeah, probably could have had a, a better weekend if they'd started where they, they should have done. In, in the end, it was a good recovery from where they ended up in qualifying. It was a nightmare Friday. But then they had all sorts of reliability problems, a DRS issue on Ricardo's side that stopped him from doing his proper FP1 programme, put him on the back foot going into qualifying. Um, and Norris had a power unit issue with a newly installed Mercedes power unit, so switched to an older one in the pool for the rest of the weekend. That would have undoubtedly cost him performance. But more important than that, in qualifying, he suffered a break-by-wire issue that manifested itself at the start of Q1 but then got progressively worse and completely ruined his Q2 so I think the cars qualified was at 15th and 16th um, so to work they, they, they used the sprint race very nicely to pick off a few positions then did a better job in the in, in the Grand Prix as well to move up ultimately I think if you've got two cars start you know that the end qualifying 15th and 16th and you come away with two okay points finishes that's a pretty good weekend's work but it was um so it was, it was arguably above expectations after Friday, but it would have been below McLaren's expectations, I think, going into the weekend. One midfield team that would have been delighted to, to nab even a point would have been Alfa Romeo, Mark. Valtteri Bottas was 11th, Joe 14th. Joe, after starting from the pits in the sprints, after letting the revs drop too low for too long on the formation lap and the engine turning itself off. Can you explain what was going on with Bottas's rear wing choices, given he changed it under Park Firm? Yeah, they um, they needed to change power unit components, so they went the whole hog. And um, because they were going to be starting at the back anyway, they thought, well, let's um, put on a, a, a lower downforce wing for the race to help um, help us overtake. And uh, yeah, he soon discovered that um, he was stuck in a DRS train, so that didn't really make much difference. So he just had the downside of the lower corner speeds without the upside of easier overtaking. Yeah, he tried that pretty early stop to make the most of clear air, but it just didn't really work ultimately. Not a, not a great weekend for Alfa Romeo overall. Scott, how about Williams? Alex Albon wasn't too far off making Q3, actually, in the upgraded Williams. He finished 12th. Are Williams getting anywhere? Yeah, absolutely. I think they are. I think this upgrade has turned them from a marginal sort of can get out of Q1 if other people make mistakes kind of car into a... I think that is a I think that's a proper Q2 car now and it might even be marginal Q2 Q3 if uh, if they get everything together and Albon has scored points in a couple of races this year but I said to him after the race that you know did this feel like the first you know real weekend in terms of fighting in the 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 the, the midfield and the good thing was Alex took the question exactly as intended rather than say yeah your points didn't really count earlier this year cuz you had to do something silly um, he 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 knew what I meant, and he he agreed that, like in a like for like situation, you know, no, no uh, absurd strategies or offset strategies. Rather, Williams was able to go toe to toe with other teams in the midfield, and just missed out a little bit on um on getting into the 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 points. But considering this wasn't really a a huge race of 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 attrition. Obviously, with um, with Perez and Signs in the picture, then okay, fourteenth doesn't look that great on paper. But it's more about that relative position, you know, how close they were, who they were fighting with. I think they've come away from this weekend quite encouraged about where that upgraded package is. But I think there's still a little bit of um, hesitation to declare it an enormous step forward because I think there was an element of the, the track suit in the car. That's certainly what was suggested. But I think it's a step forward, and I think that this is a car that the next two races before the summer break, Williams should be aiming to get into Q2 in. Yeah, encouraging signs for them, certainly. At least they can do something. Latifi, obviously, in the old spec car, didn't have a great weekend and ended up retiring with some damage that he picked up from that. First lap, Perez shunt. We'll get back to the pod in a moment. But first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. 
In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said done. Well, we'll finish off by working our way through some more of the excellent questions from members of the Race Members Club. Sorry we can't get through all of them, but you can head to therace.com and click on Join the Race to find out more about the Race Members Club. So first question, Mark, a nice broad one for you here from Simon T. What's the latest with the flexi floor argument? Is it just a storm in a teacup or have certain teams really gone beyond what is permitted? Uh, they haven't gone beyond what is permitted. They've um, read the rules. Two teams have read the rules in a way that um, allows a different interpretation to what was intended. And that's just part of the competition of Formula One. That's that's what every team would be doing. And you can guarantee, had every other team made that that, that same um, uh, discovery of, 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 of looking at the regulations saying, actually, it doesn't actually say that. It says this. Um, they would all have done it. And it's just the fact that only two have done it. And it, yes, I think it does bring uh, an inherent advantage in that you can run the car lower um, without uh, breaching the porpoising threshold. And the two teams which might have to reconfigure their cars in time for Spa um, would probably wish that uh, they didn't have to. But I, I, from what I've gleaned just asking around, it's not expected to be a big swing. Um, I, you know, maybe a tenth of a second, something like that. And given, I don't think it's 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 enough to change the competitive order. Um, put it that way. Uh, so yeah, I think um, it's good that they've uh, that the FIA has sort of leveled the playing field and said no. Okay, that regulation isn't. Um, written in the way that um, uh, it, it, to, to convey exactly what we meant. And so therefore, yeah, nobody's cheating, but actually we prefer it to be interpreted this way and here's some extra wording to, to go with that. So uh, everybody's now at a level playing field in terms of um, the, the systems uh, that define uh, the, the, the car's uh, ride height when, when, in, when in action. So that's all going to kick in properly after the summer break for the Belgian Grand Prix. Next question comes from Oscar Robledo. Scott, he says, as long as it doesn't affect your accreditation, I don't think we need to worry about that. We'll say what we think. What are your thoughts about Seb's fine? Is the FIA guilty of bringing the sport into disrepute through repeated and inconsistent and poor governance? Admittedly, there does appear to have been more consistent decisions during today's race. So Sebastian Vettel, can you just explain that fine and what you make of it? Yeah, so Sebastian's been given a suspended €25,000 fine for uh, getting a bit uh, fired up during the driver's briefing on Friday and then walking out early. I'm told he uh, basically said something along the lines of, I've been listening to your excuses for 15 years and I've had enough, basically. Because there's a big issue at the moment rising tensions between the drivers and the race officials don't like the rotating they don't like the rotating cast of stewards um i think they 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 really dislike the lack of accountability you go into one weekend some decisions get made that you don't agree with there's no chance to raise it until the following race weekend but then it's a different cast of stewards and maybe even a different race director because also the race director is now being rotated between Nils Wittek and Eduardo Freitas so the drivers are just like we go into a weekend, we we ask for explanations and then we're basically being told, oh, it wasn't us. So the blame's sort of being put on someone else for decisions that, that can't really be explained to them. They, 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 they don't like that lack of accountability. They don't like the lack of consistency. Um, I think they also, I think there's also a clash between the drivers and the race officials in terms of egos as well. I think the drivers feel like the FIA are just flexing their muscles unnecessarily over certain things. They're trying to put the drivers in their place and they're, they're getting focused and bogged down on really minor details when bigger issue things tend to not be 
taken seriously and that's what this uh, Vettel thing played to. I, I believe, I don't know the exact chronology, it might not have been exactly like this, but I believe that Vitic, the race director this weekend, was trying to get them to have a conversation about pit lane entry instructions for this weekend, pit lane entry instructions that apparently once again contradicted the International Sporting Code, which we already gone through through the Monaco weekend. Um, and guys like Vettel and Fernando Alonso were trying to have a serious conversation about racing rules and basically being pinned into having this. And I think it just, I think it just boiled over. So um, you know, as far as Oscar's question is concerned, I think the FIA is just creating more and more problems for itself, certainly. And I think it's going to get into a position where F1 and the other stakeholders think, we've talked about this before, I'm sure, you know, do we need the FIA to be as prominent as it is? We know that there is a little bit of a consideration as to how the FIA can be marginalised. And I think that's all this is feeding into, just the lack of faith in in the, in the FIA. Uh, it, I mean, it does sound like Seb being hauled over the coals was valid, given his behaviour at the meeting. But at the same time, when the FIA is at war with the drivers over a few things, is it really a good idea? Is it really constructive to to call the four, a four-time world champion GPDA director and one of the most respected drivers on the grid into the, st the steward's office to explain himself. And then in your public steward's document, while acknowledging that Vettel immediately or well, very quickly went and apologised to the race director of his own volition anyway, say that he's failing to live up to the standards of a role model, Sebastian Vettel, who is probably doing more to enhance F1's image at the moment and set a great example to everybody following the sport being accused of not being a good enough role model because he got a bit annoyed at a driver's briefing and left without permission. I just don't I just don't see how that helps when you've got a tense relationship between the FIA and drivers. Bit of an own goal. I expect Sebastian Vettel thought it was 25,000 well spent. He can afford it, so I guess he feels he made his point quite well. Good value there. Mark, next question from Thomas Knight. Two races in a row now where the AlphaTauris look very off the pace on two very different circuits. Have they fallen behind in the development races, or are there other reasons for the poor pace? Yeah, I think they have fallen behind. Um, there's just... Yeah, the, the the car is just not not balanced. It seems to have a very small window of balance, and if there are um, too big a, a spread between corner speeds on a circuit, it seems to catch the car out. And uh, yeah, it's just not as good a car as last year's relative to the opposition. And Pierre Gasly had a a slightly dramatic weekend. He had that sprint race start shunt with Hamilton, which was ultimately Gazzy's fault. He drifted over on him. And then I was listening to his onboard when he was called in for his early pit stop. He he he, he did, but he thought, well, why are we pitting now? And then he was complaining on the outlap saying, why didn't you ask me? It was pointless pitting. And they were having a bit of an argument about strategy, but I don't think it made a huge amount of difference. You did speak to technical director Jody Eggington earlier in the weekend, didn't you? What did he have to say, Scott? Uh, he said that they're out of phase with their rivals in terms of updates, as as Mark was saying, that they, they have fallen behind. AlphaTauri know this. The initial updates they brought to the car were effectively a reaction to the early trends that emerged with the new technical regs. Nothing that really focused on core weaknesses in terms of balance and outright performance. So they're just missing aerodynamic load and they're missing in particular a more positive front end. It does sound like they've become they've fallen victim to the sort of understeery trait of the the twenty twenty two cars. And I get the impression that it can almost be hidden in a way in qualifying when you've got one lap and you've got the extra grip of the fresh soft tires. It feels like that it, it can mask that a little bit. But then in a race the car like We've seen this before. I think it, I think they can qualify a little bit better, but both drivers were lost this weekend. Gasly said it was a disaster. Sonoda was baffled, basically, from qualifying through the sprint, through the end of the race, it, almost to the point where he was sort of hinting, like, I don't even know if something might be just completely wrong with my car because like it just it just it just did not feel right. So um, yeah, Gasly says they desperately need an update. Well, the good news is that there is one coming for the French Grand Prix, and it will be quite sizable. So let's see how much of a difference that makes and if it can uh, help save AlphaTauri's season because it really isn't going very well at the moment. Next question, again to you, Scott, comes from Rob Anderson, who says, in view of the apparent ongoing driver confusion relating to driving standards, expectations and etiquette, how do you think this will impact racing going forward? And obviously, we've touched on this a few times in the podcast, but do you think it's clear with drivers and was what we saw in the Austria weekend consistent? So is it making sense? 
it's not clear with drivers because we asked most of the drivers on Thursday and then across the course of the weekend and there's clearly not a consensus on what exactly is allowed and isn't. However, what I would say is that I think what was applied over the British Grand Prix weekend and the Austrian Grand Prix weekend was pretty consistent. It's just it's just this emphasis is being put on the position of the cars at the apex. And if that is the consistent approach applied going forward, then at least we know the rules. The downside with this approach is it does open the door to a few more dive bombs. It does basically let cars almost behave as they want as long as they've got ahead at the apex. This is what I was saying earlier. It almost doesn't matter what you do to get there and what you do on the exit of the corner. As long as you're ahead at the apex, it's all fair game. That could open Pandora's box if a lot of the drivers buy into it. But we'll just have to wait and see. The drivers have stressed they just want hard, fair racing. And I think that's possible within these racing guidelines. But there are also scenarios where these guidelines either encourage borderline dirty driving or they will just penalise fairly innocent incidents that are simply a result of the, you know, the realities of, of a racing incident and the, you know, the dynamics of a 3D situation. Yeah, as I'm prone to saying, as soon as you have hard and fast rules that are used, they can't describe every situation. And turn four is a particularly tricky one. All three of the penalties we saw for forcing another driver off off track or causing a collision rather across the sprint and the race were consistent with the messaging, but yeah, tricky. Of course, Gasly was also done for for tipping Vettel into a spin. He actually drifted wider in a similar position to, to Russell, so that one was even more of a slam dunk. Next question, Mark, is from Henri Ayla, who says, my question is, will Ricardo last until the end of the season or will he and McLaren come to an agreement to terminate the deal? It's clear that Ricardo's not the favoured driver in the team anymore given the recent radio messages in the sprint race. Could we see Colton Herter join the team after the IndyCar season finishes? It's a valid question. I mean, that, the, the, the fact that it is a valid question just tells you how desperately bad his season has become. Um Personally, yes, I think he'll complete the season. Um, I I think there's very little chance of him being in the in the seat next year. Um, I don't think he'll want to continue, and uh, and will use his. Uh, it, it, we we will negotiate a position, an exit from it. I'm sure, because there's no there's no sign of progress. So we've talked about this extensively. But will he be in the car after the summer break? I think it would be. Mm, quite a quite a, a a big step and i don't necessarily think either party would be prepared to take it but not impossible yeah and although he was two places behind norris this weekend he was still a couple of tenths off in the race by his own admission so solid but that's not that's not daniel ricardo is it it's not the daniel ricardo we know and have have enjoyed performing so well over the years and we should mention that colton herter is actually testing for mclaren in a year old car uh, Algarve circuits over the next couple of days so he'll be building up some experience and he could be seen in FP1 outings later this year Andreas Seidel the team principal said they'll decide who they put in the car for the FP1s you have to do two one in each car at some point during the season based on how people get on in testing. Scott, next question from Robert Greeson. With Science's engine failure today as the most recent example, the spate of powertrain reliability issues across the grid this season is worrying. Are teams pushing too far chasing performance to get ahead of the engine freeze, or is something else at play? Uh, I've little to add to what Mark said earlier when he was sort of describing the Ferrari situation. I think teams have been uh, encouraged to take more risks in the pursuit of performance, because they know that reliability can be addressed through updates later on. So I think it's mostly that. But there could also be a couple of other factors as well. There could be complications with the change in fuel for this year. The switch to the 10% ethanol mix could potentially be causing some unexpected problems the longer the engines run for. And another factor as well, I think, is the, the fatigue that sets in over the lifespan of an engine. We know that these cars are run very stiff. Maybe there are some... Uh, there's extra wear and tear going through the uh, through the engines. We know that like, vibrations and oscillations can do all manner of things to a power unit. So I wouldn't rule that out either. I think it's just a simple case of these engines are incredibly, incredibly highly stressed prototypes, ultimately. And they have been changed dramatically for this season in the pursuit of performance. So maybe it's actually 
maybe it's actually that we just had quite good reliability at the start of the season, generally speaking. And unsurprisingly, as teams have tried to push the boat out a little bit more in terms of performance and the parts have got a bit older, we've seen some problems creep in. So it, on balance, it's probably not quite as surprising once you take in all of the context. Yeah, and it's just absolutely logical that you'll take a few risks for performance, given your performance is locked, your reliability isn't. So that's kind of what the engine freeze does encourage fundamentally. Mark, question from Janis van der Waal. Can you discuss why we see a significant difference in the battles between Leclerc and Verstappen compared to Hamilton and Verstappen last year? It appears they're more respectful of each other or that Max is less aggressive since he's become world champion, or is it something else? No, I think that's a valid observation. We saw several times last year that, you know, in any wheel-to-wheel situation, Max had no compunction about just, just turning in. Um, and he, he's had several opportunities to race like that with Leclerc this year. And on no occasion has he done so. He's, he's raced in a conventional manner, shall we say. And I think it was about mm, laying down the marker because of Hamilton's stature. He's, he's the most successful Grand Prix driver of all time. And I think he's felt ever since he came in that if he had a car uh, equally quick, he could um, race on level terms with them. And I think he was just, he felt compelled to, um, you know, make that point very clear and and, and lay lay the marker down and wasn't prepared to back down. Um, And so, you know, aggression was the, form of defense if you like and um it'd be interesting to see if he still races hamilton like that if hamilton was to get a, a competitive car with the red bull um now that max has the stature of the with the, the world champion so um i'd like to think um he will he will race hamilton in the future in the way that he's raced leclerc this year yeah it's only been great to watch and the final question for you scott from Chris Parrott. Some in attendance at this weekend's Austrian Grand Prix will no doubt feel the event was overshadowed by some thuggish and intimidating behaviour aimed at female fans in particular. What are your views on these incidents? Have these sorts of behaviours become more commonplace in recent years at Grand Prix? And what can F1 do about the issue beyond issuing condemning statements? I, I, I think it's awful that these things have happened. There's no place for it. There's no excuse for it. Um, I hate it when things like this get justified as people can't take a joke or it was just banter. Um, I, that that sort of thing, just I hate it. I, I really hate it. Um, I think it is becoming more commonplace, partly because there is now uh, an increasing feeling from various members of the F1 community, whether it's drivers, teams, media, that elements of and I think it is a minority but elements of certain fan bases and I'm not singling out a team or driver here because I think it is beyond that I think it's a broader issue there are elements of these fan bases that are not generic F1 fans they end up adopting an attitude of anything goes because they're just supporting their driver and it goes too far there's no excuse or justification for it at all I was horrified to hear of some of the targeted sexual harassment there was some racist abuse as well homophobic abuse apparently it's just it's just absolutely awful um and what can f1 do apart from find try and take as many of these incidents as seriously as possible i really hope that certain things were reported to security i hope that if possible f1 and the event you know the promoter can can get hold of names and and things like this lift up the people that were abused and try and target and identify the abusers because uh, Toto Wolf had some very, very strong words for these people, basically told them, you know, we don't want you here, stay at home because this isn't a place for that that kind of attitude. Sebastian Vettel, I think, called for, you know, life bans for, for people who get found doing this stuff and I think that is absolutely the right action if, of course, these people can actually be identified. Yeah, that's going to be the key thing. And we'll keep an eye on what sort of action we hear is actually being taken. But yeah, this kind of behaviour, F1 has at least said it won't be tolerated. So let's see exactly what happens. And I'm sure it's not limited to the Austrian Grand Prix. Like you say, there's a few people on the extreme everywhere who will uh, will try and ruin it for everybody. So uh, a shame for there to be a negative note for what otherwise was such a great weekend. And those responsible for that should probably 
do a little bit of thinking about what they're doing with themselves. Well, thanks very much to Mark and Scott for your insight. Loads to read from both of them on therace.com. And don't forget the hyphen over the coming days. Do check out our sister podcasts, including Bring Back V10s and our new tech show with Gary Anderson, where he talks about innovations and conducts some interviews with some big names. And also have a look at our YouTube channel if video is your thing. We've got a two-week gap now to the French Grand Prix, but stay with us on The Race F1 podcast for everything you need to know from the world of F1. The Athletic.